Thanks for being with us today on Transit Unplugged. I'm your host, Paul Comfort, and today we have an exciting interview for you. Sir Peter Hendy, Chair of Network Rail in the United Kingdom, longtime transit leader throughout the world, is our guest today. It's a great interview. We wind down the road of his career in public transportation, starting really as a bus driver in London, working through his time as head of transport for London, and now his role overseeing the United Kingdom's rail network. And we take a look also into the future about what's going to happen in public transportation this year and and looking into the future and how some of the changes that are coming actually could be a benefit to help reduce some of the um, high peaks of demand on some of the rail networks and making it more efficiently. I think you'll really enjoy this long, in-depth, rich interview with Sir Peter Hendy, Chair of Network Rail. What does it mean to be a successful public transit agency? What are you doing to lead the way? It's time to learn from the top transit professionals. This is Transit Unplugged with your host, Paul Comfort. Welcome to Transit Unplugged. I'm your host, Paul Comfort. And today we're excited to have with you one of the world's leading experts in public transportation, Sir Peter Hendy calling in from London in the United Kingdom. Sir Peter, thanks so much for being a guest uh, with us today on Transit Unplugged. It's a pleasure to be with you, Paul. Sir Peter and I, I first met him, I don't know, maybe five or six years ago. We were just talking uh, APTA, the American Public Transit Association, where he was a speaker. And I was, when I was head of uh, the MTA in Baltimore, along with Andy Byford, we were all up on the stage at a closing event in Los Angeles several years ago, back when we could travel. And I've followed your career some, Sir Peter, and I'm so excited to have you today in your role as chair of Network Rail there in the United Kingdom. Yeah, well, it's nice to be with you, Paul. And yeah, I can remember the days when we used to travel now seem <laughs> now seem a year away, but that was good. And I and I and I follow the transit industry in the US when I can. And of course, actually today we're all in the same boat wherever we are in the world with this terrible pandemic. So I guess we'll touch on that too. Yes. Yeah. Why don't we start with going back and talking about maybe you've, you've got such a rich history in our in our industry. And I'd love to hear, and I think our listeners would love to hear, tell us some of your background, your career and how you got started and where the roles you've had there at TFL and now there and all the other spots you've had. Just take us five minutes through your history. I'd love to hear it if you don't mind. Well, what you mean is I'm an old man. That's what, <laughs> that's, that's what you mean. Now, I've been around a, lo- a long time and I started well, actually, I drove buses when I was a student. So I had a, a bus driving license in the UK when I joined L- London Transport as a graduate, the old London Transport as a graduate trainee in 1975. And I worked through, in, that, in those days, you had to be a job that doesn't really exist anymore, a conductor collecting fares at the back of the bus. I'd worked for a lot of departments. I worked as a personal assistant to a a famous chap who's dead now, who became the chairman. I drove a bus for London Transport, and then I did all the jobs, supervisory jobs, briefly ran a bus garage, and then made my way up in the hierarchy of what was then a very large unionised undertaking with 30,000 drivers and conductors. Then we started in the 80s on uh, what was a devolution move. The old London Transport was a very centralised, huge centralised organisation. It had the biggest bus fleet in the world at one stage. And I wound up running one of 
11 newly formed bus companies. We went through a lot of structural and cost change, which won't be unfamiliar with your readers, but was quite unfamiliar in 1989, at least in, in, in London. And then the company I ran called Centre West was privatised and we in 1994 and we bought it as a management and employee buyout with uh, venture capital with venture capital money. Very happy to run that for two and a half years. We bought another company. We started the work of becoming the operator for a light rail system in South London. And then we we sold the company to First Group in 1997. Really, that was forced on us because British venture capital is a very short-term funding proposition, sadly. We made them a lot of money. We made quite a bit ourselves, for which I'm, of course, very grateful. I worked for First Group for three years. I not only ran the company that I uh, that, that they bought, I ran others in London and southeast England. We opened the light rail system in Croydon. I became a director of the first group joint venture with New World, uh, which took over 80-odd routes in, in Hong Kong in 1998. And then Transport for London was formed as a new mayoral agency in the year 2000, and they advertised to somebody to manage the London bus network. And I thought, well, I'll do that. So I went back to the public sector in 2000. I worked with a man who many of your uh, listeners will know, Bob Kiley, who came over at Ken Livingston's invitation to be the commissioner. And when he and Ken fell out in 2006, I became the commissioner, a job which I did firstly for Ken Livingston, who was a very radical left-wing mayor, and then for Boris Johnson, who was an equally radical but a lot more right-wing mayor. And I did a total of nine and a half years doing that job. That's the longest anybody's run public transport, transport in London, not just public transport, the longest anybody's run it continuously since Lord Ashfield, who did nearly 30 years, and he died in 1948, so I wasn't going to beat him. And then and then we went through the terrible events of the 7th of July. We went through the Olympics, which was fantastic and a great success, though many predicted it wouldn't be. And then in 2015, the government rang me up one Friday afternoon and said, would I be interested in being the chair of the National Rail Infrastructure Body? And in less than two weeks, I'd been appointed and left. So this is allegedly a part-time job, and my wife would laugh if she heard me saying it. But I don't, I'm not the chief executive, so I don't feel the need to wake up at half past six every morning and look at operational performance. That's uh, I've got a wonderful chief executive now called Andrew Haynes, and that's his job. My job is to help him run the company. That's the job of all good company chairman, help help run the company, help the chief executive and the executive succeed and help manage the relationship with the funders, who in our case are the government. And I've been doing this now since July 2015. So that's coming up to crikey, trying to think of it now. I'm 2016, 17, 18, 19, 20. So 21, I'll have done six years, I think. Yeah, one, two, three, four and I'm told I might get appointed until 2023, and that probably will be enough, actually. So I, I don't know. I mean, the thing I would say is many, many people here say to me, oh, well, it was obvious you were going to be able to do all these jobs and it was career was your career was set out and you knew what you were doing. Actually, every one of those steps was fortuitous, I think, and 
I mean, I certainly, when I went to TfL to run the bus network, I, that was my dream job. I was in charge of the whole bus network in London, which is a, I spent my whole career doing bits and pieces in the bus industry. And when Kylie and Ken fell out, I wasn't really very keen on applying for the job, actually. It was only because the prospects for somebody else doing it, who I liked, were fairly limited. So I thought, well, stuff it. I'll, appoint, I'll, I'll apply myself, and I got it. So I'd like to think it's... It's been a good career, but I've never thought, oh, well, I'm destined for all these things. I've, I've always been surprised by how far I've got, and I'm sure that that will resonate with many of your listeners. Yeah. Now, you have a knighthood, right? You're a sir. So tell us a little about that and when you got that. And I mean, that's such an awesome thing. And a lot of us here in America, we always hear about sir this and sir that. And, and I don't know that everybody's really familiar with how that works. Would you mind sharing that for a few minutes? Unlike a good republic, which is the USA, even though the events of the last few days, it's a good republic. Britain is a Britain is a monarchy, and the Queen and her ancestors have always bestowed honours on 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 people who are considered in some way worthy of merit. In fact, I've got two. I've got something called the Commander of the Order of the British Empire, which sounds terribly Victorian, yeah. and I, I, I got that after the uh, terrible events of the seventh of July two thousand and five, the terrorist attacks on the buses in the underground, and then in much happier circumstances, I was given a knighthood after the Olympics. And I think, really, the truth is, I mean, they're rec- they, those awards are recommended by government. They're not; they, they, they are the Queen's honours, but the government put forward the names and. I mean, in both cases, they're not really mine. They're owned by the entire people who worked for me and worked for Transport for London in 2005 and 2012. I, I regard it as reflected glory. And, of course, with the Olympics, many, many, many people predicted that it would be a disaster, that the transport couldn't cope, that transport would be the weak link. And actually, it performed faultlessly. So... I don't think that I'm brilliant, Paul. I think that I was and still am lucky to have great people around me. And I regard both of those honours as as a huge reflection on the competence of Transport for London as an organisation. And indeed, when I shuffle off this this earth, as I will one day, I said to my wife and kids that the medals that you get, I want uh, given to the London Transport Museum because they... They belong to Transport for London. I, I just happen to be the lucky holder. And it's all very grand, and you get invited to Buckingham Palace and your family go along, and with a knighthood, you kneel on a on a velvet cushion and the Queen touches your shoulders on each side with a sword. But the real joy is the recognition for the organisation about what it's achieved. Because just like the US, a lot of people think that transit organisations are never going to be successful, that the people who run them aren't much use, that the staff could always work harder, do better and get paid less. And I think we proved in the case of the Olympics that we could cope with whatever was thrown at us in a way that actually delighted the government and the nation and was good fun, actually. I wouldn't say it wasn't stressful because it bloody well was. Yes, I can imagine. Speaking of good teams, and, and I think you show great grace in sharing that honor with others, but I mean, you were the one that got it and you were the leader. And so, I mean, it's, it, it's a great recognition of the role you've played in making public transportation work so well in stressful situations. 
couple of my friends from Australia. I just wondered if you knew them, Howard Collins and Neil Scales. Both of those guys are OBEs too. Yeah, they are. Well, because they're both uh, they're both Brits, and uh, yes. Neil, Neil Neil's actually Neil must have been there ten years now. But Howard Collins was the chief operating officer of the underground, and he um, he he is part of the Olympic success. In fact, not in this room in my office at work. I've got a picture of uh, Howard and I and Mike Brown and Vernon Everett uh, in front of the top bus that we took the Olympic flame down Oxford yeah. Street. Which I drove actually. Oh wow! I, uh, <laughs> and um, no, How, Howard's a great guy, and of course he's doing a wonderful job in Sydney. Yeah, uh, and I know that you've also interviewed Jerome Weimar, who yes. uh, is a protege of mine, who uh, was running public transport Victoria, and well, of course, and now we've got Andy Byford back, who great. who is so he refers to me as O two because I was the second commissioner, okay. and I referred to him as O four, and Andy is a brilliant. Brilliant, brilliant transit manager, and he'll do a fantastic job at, at, at TFL. So it's 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 I'm sure just as in the US, it's a family. One of the other people that you've interviewed in the past, I think, is Doug Kelsey, who used yes. to be in Vancouver. And Doug came over twice, three times, I think, and audited what we were doing for the Olympics because he'd done the Winter Olympics. And surprise, surprise, his experience in Vancouver was just as applicable in London. He taught me in big public events, what you do is get hold of barriers and portable toilets. And he was absolutely right. <laughs> uh, and I think one of the great things about the transit industry is that, is that it's not a selfish industry. People will share whatever they've got. Uh, I'm in touch more with Howard because of course I work with him than I am with Neil, but yeah. Howard sent me pictures of his fantastic steam engines on the, on the um, New South Wales Railway Network. And, and I've discussed industrial relations with him. Yes. Because the Australian trade unions are pretty much like the British ones. Mm -hmm. Well, I, I call it the diaspora. These uh, great leaders coming out of TFL, going through the Commonwealth, and I think it's awesome. So tell us, you, you mentioned Andy Byford. Let's talk a little bit of transit now. That's, and I really appreciate you sharing with us your background. What a, what a great story. And, and for people in our industry to emulate, I think you're a great leader to do so. But tell us about the relationship now between TFL and Network Rail. And then let's let's start transitioning to, you can tell us more about Network Rail, what's happening now. I know of course. During the uh, COVID crisis and all that. And walk us through that a little bit. Okay, so 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 TFL were so so I mean many of your listeners in 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 the US will be very surprised, but the concept of a city mayor is a very relatively new one, and the mayor of London was really the first one to be established in 2000. And TFL as a as a citywide transit organisation is therefore only 20 years old, and it's taken time to establish. But I think that the that the what it's achieved and the way it's done it have been very powerful. Two things I'd say. One of which is it's quite it's it's really comprehensive. So TFL, unlike the old London Transport, is not only buses, subways, but also heavy rail, light rail, ferries, taxi licensing. Andy will discover, like I did, that's a pain in the neck. But hey, <laughs> that's what you've got to do. And it, and it's very comprehensive. The other great thing about the mayoralty is that it's set up so that the mayor is obliged to write a long-term strategic economic development and spatial development plan for the city. So uh, then there's a transport strategy, which is long-term, and TfL's job is to enact the transport strategy. And those two things are very significant because too often 
and I'm sure the same is true in the US. It's a short-term business with no long-term funding, with no long-term aims, and with great difficulty justifying capital uh, expenditure. And in my time at TfL, we managed to get a long-term funding settlement for capital, and we managed to do some really significant things. Now, when I moved to Network Rail, Network Rail is a different sort of body because I'm appointed by the Secretary of State, who's a national politician. Network Rail is an infrastructure company, though it does control signalling, so it has a lot of control over the operations. And the railway is not comprehensively managed, which has caused us some considerable crises, actually, because a government department letting franchises that don't fit on the infrastructure Uh, an infrastructure plan that isn't related to service level provision is not optimal. It results in a waste of money, and too often it's resulted in poor service for passengers. So network rails are really a rather different body. And one of the things that I'm doing with Andrew Haynes, with many colleagues in the railway industry, which I think has been hastened by COVID, is to work with the government to try to get a new structure for the British Railway Network. I've seen it written in Europe and and overseas that railway franchising has been a great success and it certainly increased the volume of passengers. But I can tell you that when it gets to the stage of overfilling the network with trains and not having a coherent level of uh, information or a fair structure that people can understand, then it has its limitations. So... We're now working very hard and we're expecting, in British terms, what the government call a white paper, which is a statement of strategic intent, maybe even in the next few weeks from the Secretary of State to say he'd like to run it differently and he'd like a more strategic organisation to overview the railway. And I think he, I think that would be right. And in my, in, in my book, that would be a great thing to happen. Because my lesson from TfL is you can spend money more wisely and deliver a better result if you've got control over all of the levers. Interesting. So the structure right now, as I understand, and I, I was over there last year and got to ride some of the trains and had a great time, went out to Cardiff one time and then did the overnight train up to Scotland and just what an awesome rail system. But so right now you have basically what, 20 some rail operating companies running on your infrastructure. And now during COVID, you had to kind of backfill some of their funding, right? So tell us some about all that. So, so, yes, that's absolutely right. So the, the rail companies are by and large, but not wholly private sector. They, they, they have been acting on contracts let by the government, let by the okay. Department of Transport, to run on our infrastructure, and we're wholly owned by the government, but, but we're a different sort of body. And all of that came to a, a, a grinding halt when COVID started because the ridership just fell out to zero. Government advised people to stay at home. So their contracts had to be altered virtually overnight to be, in effect, cost contracts with very narrow margins. And the old system where they were encouraged to take revenue risk has fallen away. Now, we're not likely to see revenue risk transfer back to the private sector here for several years. Nobody now would take a contract of that sort. And uh, I think that – I think – I think government would like the private sector to take some revenue risk. There is some sense in people who operate trains getting a reward for the amount of money they collect and the number of passengers they carry. But it isn't going to happen anytime soon at any significant risk level because 
these operators have got no more idea than we have about what the future volumes of business look like. Right. In those circumstances, then uh, let, 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 let's suppose the sake of argument that the white paper suggests setting up a rail body, which would consist of network rail, of what we do in running infrastructure and what the Department of Transport were doing in running franchises. And I think part of the common sense of that is that actually you can use public money better if you balance the integration of the franchising and the use of the infrastructure than if you do it separately. And, and I mean, my word, we, we've been fantastically well supported by government in the sense that, it, that they've been shelling out 750 million, million a month to run this system with no passengers on it for, for, for nine months. So we can't argue we're not being looked after, but I think we can argue that we should spend the, the least amount of public money that is possible in the most effective way to run the railway. And that and that's work in progress. It, it doesn't negate what, what my chief executive Andrew is doing to get better maintenance, get better state state of repair and uh, and make better use of our resources. But it, it's it's a layer on it that we don't have. And the other thing, Paul, I'd say is that we currently we don't have a long-term strategic plan for the industry. And that's in compared with my TFL experience. So in TFL, I knew which the next project was going to be. If the mayor rang me up on his way home, wobbling home on his bike after a good dinner, and said, "Why don't we do? Why don't we build another cable car?" I was able to say to him, "Well, let's not do that, Boris. Let's do Crossrail because it's the top of our list and it's got the best financial case." And and that actually is a true story, and and that's why I supported it. But in the railway, we can't do that because we don't have a strategic plan, and I think that's a huge disadvantage as much for anything else because you'll know and your audience will know these projects take a very long time to bring to the point at which you can fund and deliver them and if you don't do the preparation they go wrong and they go badly wrong and we've had some which have gone wrong through lack of scope definition and and inadequate preparation and I don't want to be anywhere near the next ones I want a long-term plan, and we know, of course, it's government's choice where they spend their money. But the best thing we could do is to say, when you want the next thing to do in the north of England, here's a scheme. We know the business case is good. We know how much it's going to cost to deliver, and we can start delivering it. I think if the Secretary of State was on the call, he would claim some credit for advancing that. But that's what I'm hoping to read in the white paper, because that's where we should be. You think that'll lead to like a United Kingdom railway kind of a thing, or? Well, I think I think that's in his mind and the and the and the Prime Minister's mind. I mean, there 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 is some sensitivity to it because transport is devolved in Scotland and Wales. Right. But of course, actually, the railway infrastructure isn't. The railway infrastructure is ours, and I report to the Secretary of State. And I mean, there are always those in any. In any government hierarchy, there are those pressures. I think there are some in the US between the federal agencies and the states. But truthfully, having a plan and doing the best projects well is in everybody's interest. Sure, that's good. Tell us what you see kind of from your perspective as the future of for our whole industry. So, so taking a broader perspective than just network rail and TFL, I mean, I'm sure you follow all the same numbers I do from UITP that ridership levels are still way down 50% in some places still. And so 
Does the role of public mobility need to change? I mean, where do you see us going as an industry worldwide? It's a really good question, isn't it? I've been asked that several times in public, and and I think, well, I think we're at the end of the beginning, as Churchill once said about the war, not the beginning of the end. I can't see volumes going back to the previous 100% because although I probably enjoy working at home five days a week or six days a week, no more than you do, actually we've all proved we can do this. We've proved that we can have an adequate conversation across the other side of the world on on, on Zoom, you know. Okay. Maybe volumes are 70, 80 or 90%. I'm not worried about that. I mean, the interesting thing in London, I look at TfL statistics because they send them to me, so they're very nice of them. Bus ridership before we had a, the latest lockdown was at 50%. The subway was about 35%. But car volumes on the road, vehicle volumes were at 95%. Yep. So there's no choice that everybody can travel in their own vehicle just because we've had COVID. Mass transit is here to stay. The question is, what does the demand curve look like? I think the other outcome of this, which I foresee, is that people are not going to be half so willing to pack themselves in in the way that they used to. That actually, my morning journey to work from where I live now in southwest London, if there was any disruption at all, I'd have to run at the doors and force myself in before they shut. Well, I think there'll be much less willingness to do that in the next several years because I think COVID will all get vaccinated, but it won't mean it won't be there anymore. And we've looked at some of our big investment projects on the railway, and we see that even at 80% volumes, a lot of them are still justified. I might be an old man now, Paul, so other people who might have a different view, but I'm not persuaded by either the prospect in a city of 10 million, the size of London, of neighbourhood living, nor about autonomous vehicles. Mm. Mass transit is the only way that you fill up the central business district with the people with the most economic productivity. And I think many people will want to get back to that, but they may not want to do it five days a week. And if we wind up with transit systems with lower peaks and a higher off peak mm-hmm. uh, actually there, there ought to be a lot of people listening to this who say thank god for that the peak imbalance creates a huge amount of expenditure rolling stock track capacity and if it wasn't there you could manage a much more effective network at much cheaper cost be a lot more efficient wouldn't it it would yeah you know the last train the last train into London Waterloo does one journey. It's 12 cars. It costs a huge amount of capital. It occupies track space that you could probably rationalise. It occupies depot space. Actually, the system is there to serve the public interest. So if those people present themselves, we should be trying to carry them to, to help them make productive work. But if they've changed their methodology of lifestyle and they only want to travel three days a week, and some of their colleagues don't travel on the days they do, actually, we shouldn't be upset by that, I don't think. Yeah. It's funny. I was just talking with Joshua Shank, who is the head of the Office of Innovation at Los Angeles Metro. He's our guest this week on the show that you and I are talking. And he told me something which I thought was a really good kind of like paradigm shift. Basically, the thought that in Los Angeles, they've made a shift in thinking that the role of transit isn't just to stuff people on buses and trains. It's actually to reduce congestion and to improve people's mobility, getting them out of single occupancy cars. And so that could include, you know, bike riding, other things. And so 
I mean, what's your thoughts on that? Is is the role of transit not now just to have ridership? Well, I, I mean, absolutely. I'm I'm further back than he is. I mean, yeah. one of my jobs at Network Rail is to alter what we put into the public domain and start it by saying that connectivity is the best means of, of facilitating economic growth, job creation, ha- building houses and social cohesion. And that's why people want it. And the transit industry should be there to deliver those things. It's not tra- it's not transport for the sake of it, except for enthusiasts. It's got a purpose and, it, and it's worth investing in for that purpose. And as habits change, we should adapt what transit is there for to address the issues. The sustainability all over the world in cities is a really big issue. The biggest issue that the mayor's confronted successfully in London in the last five years, but not last four years since he was elected, five years is is air quality. And there's no doubt that transit has a huge role to play in better air quality, which kills people. Right. That's good. Yep. Yeah. So I think coming out of COVID, maybe that's uh, one of the silver linings is it's given us an opportunity to realign what our purposes are. Thoughts on that? Yeah, absolutely. And the other opportunity it gives is to actually think again about the way in which you interact with the people who are travelling. Now, I'm lucky at TFL because I had some great colleagues and we revolutionised the fare collection and information systems to respond much better to customers. In this pandemic, the use of cash, for example, has almost dropped to nothing everywhere except on the railway, where we still expect people to exchange folding money or coins for a cardboard ticket actually look at that in the modern era and say this is nonsense i go out now with a credit card that that's all i need credit card and house keys it's all i need <laughs> to buy bread whatever hasn't hasn't turned up with internet shopping and transit is other than in london actually in the uk is the virtually the only big thing left where you still need money and it's nonsense so we have to rethink how this works for the benefit of the people who we serve and who pay for it through taxes that's great any last thoughts as we wrap up our interview today i mean uh, i wanted to talk about the two route master buses you've got and, oh yeah and all that fun stuff but uh, any any things you want to share at the end here well i think i i mean i all I'd say is I think there are a lot of secret enthusiasts in the transit industry. One of the things, actually, one of the things I'm proudest of, uh, of at TFL is that we ran a steam train on the, on the underground on the 150th anniversary, which was nothing but huge fun, but but actually served a great purpose in publicising the system and how old it was. I'm un- unashamedly enthusiastic. So I, my two buses haven't been out much this year, but they'll be out as soon as we can get them out. I raise money for charity with them it's really interesting just like the subway in new york and the image of london is a mixture of underground trains and big red buses and i think we should be proud of being part of the city shouldn't we and and on the national railway network i'm much in favor of running steam locomotives they're a source of huge pleasure for many many people and and they prove that we are human beings in running it they prove that we've got a sense of romance and place of the place of the, of the railway in people's lives and i think i think paul it's really important that's great thank you so much sir peter handy for being our guest today on transit unplugged what a legacy you've had and i can't think of anybody better to be in the position of leadership as you potentially transition how the whole of network rail runs in the united kingdom and as an example for the rest of the world thank you very much it's a pleasure to talk to you paul 
You've been listening to Transit Unplugged, powered by Trapeze Group. To stay up to date, subscribe on iTunes or Google Play, or join the conversation at transitunplugged.com. Thanks for listening.